You're listening to CSN International, your home for the latest praise and worship music and solid Bible teaching. In just a moment, we're going to join a study from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. But first, I'd like to invite you to come out and join us in person. We're located in Twin Falls, Idaho, and have our Sunday morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and Sunday and Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Visit theriverchristianfellowship.com and click on the map for directions or to schedule a visit. We're glad you're tuned in and hope you enjoy today's verse-by-verse study recorded live during one of our Wednesday or Sunday services. Now let's join the teaching already underway. There we go. Single player sports are good because you can, if you're really good, you don't have to rely on other people to, to make your team good. But if you're terrible at single player sports, then you can't really have any fun. Like my bowling score, I think the highest I've been is 100, maybe. Get a lot of gutter balls. Uh, now we have team sports. Uh, baseball, football, basketball, all those team sports. Now has anyone ever been a bad player on a good team. Raise your hand at that one. Okay. Star athletes. No, these are the non-star athletes. These are the bad players on the good team. This is me. The, the bad players on the good team. This is good because if you're terrible, you can at least do a good job on the team. Like when I was in high school, I played football a little bit, like till 10th grade. And the 9th grade year when I played football, we went undefeated. We were a pretty dominant team. We made it to state. Lost that state, and I played about two minutes of varsity football that year. So I didn't really help all that much, but hey, I was on the winning team. It was great times. And so we have, you know, the single player sports and the team sports. You know, what's the point about sports? Well, what about if we ask, how does our culture see life? Is life a single player sport or is life a team sport? Culturally, we say it's single player sport, that uh, follow your dreams, be the best you can be, you're special, you're unique, whatever it takes to get where you want to go, it's all, it's all on you, single player, single player sport. So we tend to see life as a single player thing. We don't really rely on other people all that much for the big picture kind of things. And what about salvation? Is our salvation a single player sport or is it a team sport? Here's where things can get maybe a little trickier. I would say every religion sees salvation as a single-player sport except for Christianity because it's you work hard, you follow the rules, you be obedient to all these laws. Whatever religion it is, even if it's non-religious, so to speak, there's certain rules everyone follows so that they feel like they have salvation. And when you're on a, if you have a single-player sport mentality of salvation then other people are either in the way of your salvation, like they're competition, or they're just a tool to help you get there, like someone you can do good to. So I would say every other religion except Christianity sees salvation as a single-player sport. But Christianity, though, is a team sport. And really, there's only two teams. And we'll say, based on what we're going to read tonight, you have Team Adam on one side and Team Jesus on the other. And it's not so much with Christianity how good of a player you are, it's what team you're playing on is what's much more important. Because you could be the MVP of Team Adam, and spoiler alert, Team Adam loses, and you could be 
the worst player on Team Jesus, but Team Jesus wins. And it's, again, it's not so much how good of a player you are with Christianity, it's which team you're playing for. So in the book of Romans, we're going to read tonight, Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 12. It, Paul, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, brings this idea of contrast between Adam and Jesus. If you're in, in Adam or if you are in Jesus. And this is in what we would call the justification section of Romans. It's, Romans is an essay on salvation, so to speak. And the whole book is about the sentence right up there. The just shall live by faith. And Paul is proving that in the book of Romans. And so there's a few chapters of condemnation where he's showing everyone how you're a sinner. You have no works to stand on. And he's closing up his section on justification at the end of chapter 5 here. And what justification means, very important to understand, is that justification is a legal declaration of righteousness. So from God's point of view, he declares a person righteous, not inwardly, because of things we've done, but legally, because of that's how he sees the relationship. I think, like every week, I've compared it to marriage. Marriage doesn't create love in you, but it's a legal standing that shows kind of where you stand in, in that regard. And justification is not inward righteousness. It's actually outward, and it's God declaring you legally righteous. And last week, we saw how the idea that we are justified by grace, that's God's unmerited favor, through faith in Jesus, how that completely transforms, transforms your life. And now, this week, Paul kind of lays it out as a contrast of Adam and Jesus, and how we sort of suffer the consequences of Adam, but then there's also Jesus that undoes those consequences. In this section of Scripture, it can be very difficult to understand, but it's been said that if you understand this passage, you understand the idea of justification by grace. So that's my job tonight is to hopefully, prayerfully get, help you to understand what Paul is saying here. And this can get very theological. It can get, this is where people get the idea of original sin, and we're not really going to look at that aspect of this as far as the theological. I felt when I was preparing this and praying, I want to keep it very practical and not get, you know, not that those things aren't important, but to make it practical. What are the practical consequences of being either in team Adam or on team Jesus. And the, the problem is that we have sinfulness in our very nature as part of being on team Adam that inhibits us from salvation. Like I said, team Adam is the losing team. No matter how good of a player you are on team Adam, you are losing because our salvation is a team sport, not a single player sport. So being on team Adam automatically precludes you from salvation. And because Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection is the only thing that can overcome our Adamic nature, so to speak, we must seek salvation in His work. Being on Team Jesus is the only way to salvation. And it doesn't matter how good of a player you are, if you're on Team Jesus, you're going to win. It's tonight, Romans 5, starting in verse 12, again, we'll start looking at what it means to be on Team Adam, and then we'll go into what it means to be on Team Jesus. So Romans 5, starting at verse 12, we'll go 12 through 14, about team Adam. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, he's already starting a little vague, so that one man is Adam, sin entered the world through that one man Adam, as God created the world perfect and without sin, he created Adam without sin, but Adam chose sin, and Eve chose to sin, and sin entered the world through that one man. 
and death through sin, because the wages of sin is death. So because Adam sinned, death also entered the world. And thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. And so that's very important. Death spreads to everyone. And we're all sinners, so sometimes this idea of original sin, are you born with a sinful nature? I believe we are, biblically, but it's, it's not a super important argument because you're going to choose the sin anyways. And it says, because all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. And what, what Paul means by this is death entered the world through the sin of Adam, but there was no law, there were no rules against sin until the time of Moses, hundreds of years later. And even though sin was not accounted to people's accounts as unrighteousness because there was no law, sin was still in the world because death was in the world. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. And so sin reigned through death because of the transgression of Adam. And so that's our basic, you know, team Adam from this section of scripture that we're going to look at. But I don't want to assume we all understand these things. And I think the best place to look for characteristics, what's it mean to be on team Adam, is when we look at the sin that Paul is referring to here. The sin of Adam and Eve way back in the beginning of Genesis. So we're going to be in there a little bit tonight. So if you would, please turn to Genesis chapter 3, way at the very beginning of the Bible, to see characteristics of Team Adam. What does it mean to be on Team Adam? Genesis chapter 3. And to set this up a little bit, Genesis 1 and 2 is before sin entered the world. There's only four chapters in the Bible without sin, the first two and the last two. And otherwise, sin comes through the whole Bible. And the first two chapters of the Bible have no sin. God creates the universe perfect. Everything was very good, he says. He creates man and woman as very good and without sin. And he tells them to live in the garden, and you can do whatever you want, live in paradise, except for you can't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that sets us up for Genesis chapter 3 to see what does it mean to be on Team Adam? What does Team Adam look like, the losing team? So first of all, Team Adam does not believe what God said. So Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? A revelation reveals that this serpent is Satan, our great enemy, coming to deceive Eve and to say that, did God really say you couldn't eat from that tree? And spoiler alert, Eve does. So team Adam does not believe what God says. That's our original team, doesn't believe what God says. Now culturally this is very easy to see because God created man in his image But then man creates God in their image. God created people to be a reflection of his image. But what we do on Team Adam, and that's all of us, we decide what we want God to be like, and then we say that's who God is. So we say things on Team Adam like, I don't think God would send people to hell. I don't think God would really care what I'm doing as long as I'm not hurting anybody. I don't think God would care who I'm in a relationship with. 
And people saying things like that is recreating God in their image rather than being created in His image. And it's not believing what God said. It's really, well, I'm the God, and I'm going to create a God worthy of me. And that's part of being on Team Adam, and this, this is all of us. And on Team Adam, we don't see the arrogance of doing that, of saying, here's the God I want, so here's the God I'm going to make, and then maybe I'll serve Him. But on Team Jesus, sometimes we struggle with this as well. On Team Jesus, we'll be tempted to make Jesus into the Jesus we want. Maybe ignore some of the things he says. And we can see this. I mean, there's lots of different Jesuses. There's a fundamental Republican Jesus, right? And then there's liberal theology Jesus, completely different. And it's because sometimes we, can want to, we see what we want to see, and we don't believe what God actually says. And the way to protect against that is knowing what God says in His Word, in the Bible, and knowing the whole thing to protect ourselves from making God in our image and letting us to be made in His image. So studying the Bible, but being led in prayer and through the Holy Spirit so we don't transform Jesus into what we want, but so that we are transformed into what Jesus wants. But Team Adam does not want to believe what God says. They want to make God in their image. And we see that in verse 1. Now moving on, Team Adam also adds to what God says. Verses 2 and 3. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And so Eve responds to the serpent's temptation to eat of that and says that God said we couldn't. But Eve adds a little bit. Eve adds, God said we can't even touch the fruit, and God never said that. And on Team Adam, that makes sense to us, to be justified by our works, to be declared legally righteous by the things we do, rather than faith. So we add things to do, so we can feel better about doing them. So we can feel when we follow our rules, that God is very pleased with us. And Team Adam likes to add things to what God has said and put additional burdens on people, where Jesus says His burden is light. And we put other commands, we put other burdens on people, because again, on Team Adam, our natural team, so to speak, the team we're born onto, wants to be saved by works, because that makes sense. But Christianity says we are saved by grace, and by letting God speak for Himself and say, this is how He's saving people. Not by adding things, like Team Adam does. Third, Team Adam wants to be God. In verses 4 through 7. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And so Satan tempts Eve here by saying, God just doesn't want you to eat the fruit, because then you'll be like him. And that's very tempting for you. That's very tempting for everybody on Team Adam, and even on Team Jesus, we fall into that temptation of wanting to be God. And this is really at the crux of being on Team Adam. Before 
you're on team Jesus. The team you're born onto, this is what it's all centered around, is you want to be God. You want to rule your own life. You want to make judgments that only God has the right to make. You want to decide what's right, and you want to decide what's wrong. You want to be happy no matter what the cost is. You want people to serve you. You want people to admire you. You want people to affirm you. You want to do what you want to do, and you don't want anyone else to tell you differently. And so as Team Adam, what we want is to be in the position of God, where everything is about us, and everyone is there to serve us, and we get to decide what we want to do. Hey, that's yeah, Speaking from experience and all this, and we all, once we're on Team Jesus, have this Team Adam that's battling against us. We'll get into more later. But this is really at the heart of all human sin, is pride, the pride of wanting to be God, to be in the position that only God can have. And this self-righteous, self-centered mindset is death. It's a burden that we can't bear. Wanting to be God is something humans cannot handle that pressure. And we see a lot of problems in our world because of this. And you're not God on Team Adam, and living your life like you are is crushing everything around you. Living like you're God destroys your family because you're the most important one. Your happiness is the most important and everyone around you thinks the same way. So there, there's no serving. It's all, everyone is here to serve me. Hey, thinking that you're God, the top of your life, the, the supreme authority that I answer to is myself, that destroys marriages. Because a lot of times this is my marriage, mine and Adrian, when we wanted to get married, it's because she'll make me happy the rest of my life. Hey, like I'm to be served in, in the marriage, and she's thinking the same thing. And we're both depending on each other to make you happy, what happens when the person fails in that, when the person doesn't make you happy? Because you're not in that position to be at the top. That's God's position. It being the ultimate authority in your life, it destroys your friendships. Because when you're the top authority in your life and everyone, you decide what's right and wrong, your friends aren't your friends. Your friends are there to build you up. They're there to affirm you. They're there to tell you what you want and point out all your good qualities. And as soon as they don't do that, find new friends. I don't want those friends that, that tell me the truth. And when, again, it's when we think, it's not that anyone would say, I think I'm God. I mean, most people wouldn't say that, but they would say, I want to be in charge of my life. I want to do what I want. And it destroys all these things. Ultimately, it destroys yourself. Because you'll jump from thing to thing to thing, trying to find whatever's going to make you feel good enough about yourself to bring you the happiness and the esteem that you feel like you deserve, but it won't. So maybe for a while it's, uh, it's drugs for a while. That doesn't work. So moving into something else. And maybe it's buying stuff. That doesn't work. So you move to something else. And it's this constant jumping from thing to thing to try to find the thing that's going to build you up the way you feel like you deserve, but it won't. And even on Team Jesus, yeah, this is what Team Adam wants to do. And not that Adam's a bad guy. I mean, obviously Adam was made in God's image, and he's not evil. And there's plenty of good people on Team Adam, but that's really the, the desire of the heart is to be prominent over everything, to be God. Fourth thing about being on Team Adam is Team Adam lives in shame. Verses 8 through 11. And when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, 
And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? So when Adam sins, when Adam and Eve sin, and they, because they want to feel, you know, at the top of their life, no one tells them what to do, they feel shame. They feel shame about that. And our culture, maybe being on Team Adam, you don't feel shame, but that's because our whole society is to set up so that you don't feel any shame. Because we have self-esteem, you can feel really good about yourself, and that's, that's vital. You need to feel good about yourself. We have self-help. You can read books to tell you how great you are and how you're the answer to all your problems. There's no shame. That's just how people are. We have counseling to tell you, no, you're just being how people are. There's nothing wrong with what you're doing. We have psychiatry. We have Facebook. You can make the perfect image of yourself that you want to show to people. And there's no shame in our culture. We don't see it, but there's shame there. But we're blinded to it so much of the times. I'm a... A teacher, and I teach in Jackpot, and we have twice a month these anti-bully meetings. We're supposed to go through this anti-bullying stuff with one of the classes. And one of the things that, that we do in those anti-bullying meetings is I give a, a quiz or a questionnaire on how much empathy do you have? How much do you care about other people? And they give them situations about times where empathy will be good. And then they rate how they feel in those situations. And then you add up your score and it tells you how empathetic you are, how much you care about other people versus how much you only care about yourself. And I've done this for two years and they are shocked by the result. Because you're supposed to score like somewhere in the 60s. That says you have good empathy, you care about other people. Most of the kids, like half of them are in the negatives. They're in the neg- you're supposed to be in the 60s, they're scoring in the negatives. Most of them don't break 10, even if they're in the positive digits. And this is a shock to them, and it's not their fault. I'm not saying they need to, to know better. It's a shock because they've been told their whole lives, you are a special snowflake. You can follow your dreams. You're perfect just the way you are. And when something says, well, maybe you're not, maybe you're self-centered, that's shocking. And we are designed not to feel any shame. We just don't see it. We are blinded to it because our culture wants to blind us to the shame we should be feeling. So maybe just because you're not feeling shame about being on Team Adam, so to speak, doesn't mean there is no shame. It means you're not looking for it. Number five, Team Adam makes excuses. In verses 12 through 13, Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. So Adam blames his wife. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so she blames the serpent. Everyone is making excuses. Everyone is finding someone to blame. And this is what we want to do if we're playing for Team Adam, is find people to blame. And when I'm reading this account of the fall of humanity, what I am struck by is how timeless this is and how timely it is. This exactly explains our culture and the world we live in because we all want to be the top of our lives. We want to feel no shame. We want to feel really good about it. We make excuses when somebody points it out. And then why is there this big push in the scientific community to study DNA? I mean, if you can blame it on your DNA, then it's not your fault. That's just who you are. And they're trying to link all these different things to 
It's part of your DNA, so really, it's fine. You can't help yourself because we want to make excuses. And we blame everyone else for our problems. If we can't blame it on our genetic predispositions, we blame it on other people. We, we say things, if my boss was nicer, then, then I'd work harder if my boss was better. If I got paid more, well, then I'd do a better job. If my wife were more attractive, then I wouldn't commit adultery. If my husband treated me better, then I wouldn't go looking for somebody else. Hey, if my kids would listen to me, then I wouldn't have a drinking problem. If only Obama wasn't president, then America would be fantastic. Hey, if only gays weren't trying to get married, then our country wouldn't be being destroyed. If only this church would do blank, then I would serve more. And we blame everything on other people and everyone except ourselves. But Jesus says, if you can't be trusted with a little, you're not going to be trusted with a lot. And if you can't do your job when you have a bad boss, or you can't serve because you see these problems going on, then how can you be trusted with a lot when, thing, when things are going well? And we find all these different ways to blame, whether it's on our genetic predisposition, on other people, on our situations. But Team Adam makes excuses. And there's a lot of things we could say about being, playing for Team Adam, uh, but for the sake of time, for sticking to this passage in Genesis I think that paints a pretty clear picture of what Team Adam is all about. I mean, what, what we do as players of Team Adam. You know, this is the team we're born onto okay, by our sinful nature that we inherit. And I mean, if you have kids, you can see, I didn't, I didn't know what I thought about original sin until I had kids. Like, you don't have to teach them how to do the wrong thing. It just comes very naturally. And this is the team you're born onto. But it's not the team you were meant to be born onto. It feels like it can be very natural to be this way because this is how we've grown up our lives. And if you don't know Jesus, you are on Team Adam. By default, because you have a sinful nature, but also because you've chosen to sin. Without Jesus, you're automatically on Team Adam. There's no middle ground. If you're not for Jesus, you're against Him. But if you know Jesus, if you're on Team Jesus, this is the fight. This is the battle because... We like Team Adam. Team Adam makes us feel good. Team Adam builds us up, gives us more power and authority. Team Adam makes sense to us. Because probably we were on Team Adam longer than we've been on Team Jesus. But it feels very natural for us to be like this because we have this sinful nature. But Team Adam is the losing team. It doesn't matter if you're the MVP of Team Adam. It doesn't matter if you're a bench warmer on Team Adam. Team Adam loses. Team Adam already lost. It doesn't matter. Okay, let's jump back to Romans now. Romans 5. Talk about Team Jesus. Yeah. Get fired up. Yeah. Yeah. Here's, here's Team Jesus. This is the team I play for. And so I'm excited about Team Jesus, but I understand Team Adam because I was on that team for like 25 years and I fully embraced it. Like I, I think I would have been a good player on Team Adam. Well, I think I was because that, that all describes me. But now Team Jesus. So Romans 5, 15 through 17. But the free gift is not like the offense. The free gift of righteousness by grace is not like what Adam did. It's different. 
For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. The wording to me is really confusing there, but, but what he's getting at is if we see such big consequences from one man's sin, how much more grace are we going to see from one man, Jesus, what he did? If we see all these things on Team Adam, we see the death that's a result of Adam's sin, how much more can we see the righteousness of God and the grace through the one man, Jesus? And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. And we see from one offense, from Adam disobeying God in that one thing, we see all this death, all this punishment, all this condemnation. But then he says, if one thing could cause all that, how much more the free gift from many offenses is going to result in justification for what team Jesus did. In verse 17, For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Again, what what he's saying is, if you see the death as a result of Adam's sin, how much more can you see the grace of what Jesus has done? It's, It's almost like because there's death in the world, that can be something we depend on to show that grace is true because if the one's true, then the other's true. And so now Team Jesus. Okay, let's talk about Team Jesus. We dealt with Team Adam. Now, Jesus undoes the work of Adam. And that's why he's called the last Adam in the Bible. They call Jesus the last Adam. Because he undoes the things that Adam did that we read in Genesis 3. So on Team Jesus, here, well, Team Jesus is really all about Jesus. He could be the solo sport guy and be better, but he lets us be on his team. And so... Where Adam didn't believe what God said, like we, we talked about in Genesis 3, Adam didn't believe what God told him. Jesus perfectly obeyed what his father told him. And where Adam didn't listen, Jesus was obedient. In John 6:38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And where Adam wanted to do his will, and where we want to do our will apart from Jesus, Jesus says, I didn't come to do my will, but the will of my Father who sent me. And he says he he came down from heaven. And think, you know, Jesus has always been God the Son, existing eternally as God the Son. And you get a glimpse of that in the book of Isaiah, when Isaiah is allowed to go in the throne room. And he sees the robe of Jesus filling the whole room. And he's being worshipped nonstop. The angels shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And John said, I think as John says that Isaiah was seeing Jesus. They're God the Son. They were God the Son, left that, came down to heaven to do the will of his Father. And in Philippians 2, it says that Jesus humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death. Yeah, that's how much he listened to his Father. And think about, hey, Team Adam, how much we don't humble ourselves. I mean, this just happened not too long ago. I, mean, I don't humble myself even to the point of apologizing. Like a, a few days ago, Adrian and I had an argument, probably about something dumb. I don't even remember what it was about. That's how it usually goes, right? And uh, I remember being frustrated, like we weren't getting anywhere, and we were, I mean, it was civil, but, you know, frustrating. And we decided to, I don't, I don't remember exactly what happened, but I know I went down to the basement to pray and try to get my head straight and all that. But what I was thinking was, 
Why should I have to apologize? Why can't she apologize first? I'm not going to apologize. And that's how little I will humble myself on Team Adam. That's how little we humble ourselves. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death. Not just apologizing. Think about how much of little things do you not humble yourself for? Jesus humbled himself to the point of death so that he could do what his father told him to do. And Jesus continues, he says, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He says, the will of my father who sent me, or this is the will of the father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. And that's why Jesus was sent from heaven to do the will of his father. And we also see where Adam turned from God in a garden, Jesus turned to God in a garden. And the night before he died and he was praying, and so in such agony he was sweating drops of blood, and he turns to God. And one of the things he prays to his father is, not my will be done, but yours be done. And Jesus always obeyed what his father said. Team Adam, we don't want to believe what he says. Jesus perfectly obeys it. Second, team, or where team Adam adds to what God says, like we talked about, Jesus fulfills what God says. He doesn't add to it. He does exactly what it said it was going to do. And there's hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that said what God the Son was going to do or the Messiah was going to do to redeem Israel from, from their sins. There's tons of them. Let's just look at two things. That shows how Jesus fulfills what God says. So uh, please turn to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, about halfway through the Bible. And this, this is a psalm a messianic psalm, they're called. It was written by David, and it applied to his life, but it had a deeper meaning that applied to the Messiah. And this shows you how Jesus fulfills God's word. He didn't add to it, but he fulfills it. And where, where this psalm affects me personally is it refers to Jesus' suffering on the cross, and it's all, we don't get a first-person account of Jesus dying. I mean, it's written by other people. But we could see this as being written through the Holy Spirit by David, and it connects to the Messiah that this could almost be like Jesus saying from a first-person view of what was going through his mind on the cross. And this was written hundreds of years before Jesus came to the earth. So Psalm 22, we won't read the whole thing, just a few verses. Verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus shouts that on the cross. Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I'm not silent. And jump down to verse 6. But I am a worm, and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And this is exactly what people were taunting Jesus with as he was dying on the cross. If he is the Messiah, why doesn't he save himself? Why can't he do it? Verse 14, 14 through 18. I am poured out like water, 
and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And Jesus fulfilled that. And he, that's part of what he did as the Messiah hundreds of years before it was written. He didn't add to things. He fulfilled them. Also in Isaiah 53. It's not too much farther from Psalms. A little bit ahead. Isaiah 53, we'll start at verse 4. And Jesus fulfilled these things. This is, we're in about 700 years before Jesus came to the earth. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Everything we did as part of Team Adam, God laid on his son, Jesus, to undo that. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. You think of what Jesus said on the cross. He said, God, forgive them for what they do. If we wouldn't have said that, we would have shouted back. We would have defended ourselves. Jesus didn't open his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. As he was buried in a rich man's tomb. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. It was common when you were crucified. It was pretty low. It's not way up high, as you might think. And a lot of times, people were being taunted. You know, they would spit in their face, or even urinate on them. Jesus didn't do anything like that. There was, he didn't do any violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And Jesus doesn't add to God's word. He fulfills it. He suffered to fulfill God's word. A third thing, Team Jesus. Team Adam wants to be God. Team Adam wants to be in charge of everything. Jesus is God. And John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was God, not a God. And so Jehovah's Witnesses will say it's a God. If there's any Jehovah's Witnesses listening, I would ask this. Hey, John was a devout Jew. If you don't even look in the grammar of this John was a devout Jew, and the number one command 
of being Jewish was there is one God and you shall worship him alone. And it says, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They, shout, they said that every service. They said, so if John being a devout Jew, why would he imply that there was many gods? There is one God. The, the word was God. And then in John 1.14 it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is God. In John 10, Jesus says, I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. And some people say Jesus never said he was God. He never claimed he was God. Jesus didn't have to say it. Everybody knew what he was getting at. That's why, that's why he was murdered, because they knew he was saying he's God. John chapter 20, And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Again, Jesus, whatever else you believe about him, historically he is a devout Jew. And again, there's one God. Jesus, if he's not God, would not accept worship. If Thomas says, my Lord and my God, if Jesus is not God, he would rebuke Thomas. That's what we see in the book of Acts. Uh, Paul and Peter are both worshipped in the book of Acts. And they would say, hey, I'm just a man. I'm not God. Jesus would say that if he wasn't God. Jesus is God. Team Adam wants to be God, but Jesus is God. Number four, Team Adam lives in shame and hides it. Jesus was shamed to expose and cover our shame. And what, one of the things, probably the thing that hits me hardest when I read about Jesus and his betrayal and his death and his crucifixion is the shame he endured for that. And put yourself on the street or wherever Jesus was walking as he's bearing his cross. He was tried in the city and then he had to take his cross to outside the city gates to be crucified. And there's a crowd there. Some people to scorn him, some people just to see what's going on, some people to support. But if you're in that crowd watching Jesus bear his cross, hey, you see a man who had just been beaten within inches of his life. He was scourged, the Bible says, by professional Roman torturers. And they took, took his clothes off and exposed his backside and tied him to a pole and whipped him over and over with a whip that had metal barbs that would ripped the flesh, and you would see Jesus' scarred body walking down the road. You would see a man who had just been falsely accused of sedition. That's inciting people to rebel against the empire. He'd been accused of that. You would see a man who had been betrayed by all of his friends. They all scattered, including being betrayed to death by Judas. And you would see a man who had been spit on, slapped, made fun of, and they would say, if you're a prophet, tell me who just slapped you. And you'd see that guy. And you'd see a man who had a crown of thorns shoved into his head in mockery of, he was accused of being king of the Jews. You would see a man who, also in mockery, was stripped of his clothing and given robes to say, hey, you're a king, Here, here's, your, here's your robe. And you would see a man who's in the prime of his life, in his 30s, in excellent physical condition, so badly beaten and scarred and wounded, 
that he can't carry his own cross. And Simon of Cyrene has to carry it for him. If you're in that crowd and you're seeing all this, you might doubt his guilt. I mean, Jesus had been teaching earlier that week in Jerusalem. And you might think, you know, this guy's not guilty of anything. I heard his teaching. And this trial happened so fast. He can't be guilty. But what you could not deny was Jesus' shame. He was completely and utterly shamed. Why? Why was Jesus shamed? For you, for me, to be on Team Jesus, so that you could expose your own shame to Jesus, because he's been shamed in public, and so that he can cover your shame once it's been exposed to him. In Genesis, after Adam and Eve sin, and they're aware of their shame, and they're ashamed of what they've done, God provided a covering for them so they wouldn't be naked anymore. Hey, Jesus put himself through public shame in a way we can't even imagine, so that we can feel free to expose our shame to him, and he'll cover it with his blood. But then in Hebrews 12:2 it says that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He didn't see it as shame, he saw it as joy, so people could be on his team, despising the shame. He despised it. He scorned it. And has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was shamed, so we can tell our shame to him, so he can cover it. And we don't need to be ashamed anymore. Number five, Team Adam makes excuses, but Jesus doesn't allow excuses. And one of the things I love about Jesus is that he doesn't allow excuses. You read through the Gospels, it's, 100% lay down your life, surrender your life, pick up your cross, die daily, don't look back, give your entire life to Jesus. It's not a middle thing, it's it's full. There's no excuses. But also in the whole Bible, you never see one excuse for sin. There's never one time where God said, I can understand why you did that. There's never one time where God said, it's not your fault, it's someone else's fault. There's never one time where God said, It's because of your DNA. There's no excuses. And this is what's so refreshing about the Bible is it's brutal honesty. In a world where we all want to excuse ourselves, we want to blame our problems on our DNA, on our genetics, on other people, on our situation. The Bible says none of that. No excuses. You are who you are. Maybe jump. Uh, So there's more things we could say about being on Team Jesus that you could write a whole book about this, the contrast of Team Adam and Team Jesus. But the, the picture is clear. The teams are laid out. And so quickly, let's look at how these two teams fight with each other. Team Adam versus Team Jesus. Again, not that Adam's a bad guy, but that's our natural side. So verses 18 through 21, back in Romans. Finish chapter 5. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. And because Adam sinned, many have been made sinners. Because Jesus was righteous, Jesus was obedient, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. The law tells us how sinful we are. That's why God gave rules in the Old Testament. 
But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. When we know how sinful we are, we see how much more grace God has had on our lives. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, Team Adam versus Team Jesus. So members of Team Jesus, my teammates, hey, we've been set free from Team Adam. We don't have to play for Team Adam anymore. We're going to be tempted to go back to it. Because again, that's what's natural for us. That's what feels good. But you don't need to go back to it. They don't think that it's better over there. You don't have to play for Team Adam anymore. Team Adam is the losing team. Now, Team Adam, when we're tempted, we turn to sin. But on Team Jesus, when we're tempted, we turn to the Word. And on Team Adam, when we're insecure, we turn to others and judge them so that we can feel better about ourselves. On Team Jesus, when we're insecure, we turn to Jesus to judge ourselves. And on Team Adam, when we're hurt, we seek vengeance. And on Team Jesus, when we're hurt, we trust that vengeance is the Lord's and He will repay. And on Team Adam, when we're desperate, we turn to anything that seems like it will give us an answer. On Team Jesus, when we're desperate, we turn to Jesus because He is the answer. On Team Adam, we want people to serve us. On Team Jesus, we want to serve people. On Team Adam, we want to do whatever we want. On Team Jesus, we want to do what He wants. On Team Adam, we want pleasure at any price. On Team Jesus, our greatest pleasure is in knowing Him. The hard times are still going to come, even on Team Jesus. And we'll still be tempted. We'll still be insecure. We'll be hurt. We'll be desperate. But when we're on Team Jesus and our identity is in that, when we are in Christ, we don't have to respond in our old way. We've been set free from that. We don't play on that team anymore. We can respond in the way Jesus would have us. And yeah, it's hard. Your team Adam is easy. But that's why Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit. If we're obedient to what He says, if we're reading in His Word and we're praying, then we can start to play like we're actually on team Jesus, not like you know, some guy faking it. The only way to defeat team Adam is to worship. And so again, read the Bible, pray, serve, love, give, rejoice in Jesus. The more you worship, the better player on team Jesus you're going to be. But the point is, to close, is what team are you on? A team Adam might win some of the battles, but team Adam already lost the war. If you're on team Adam, it doesn't matter if you're the MVP or it doesn't matter if you're sitting on the bench. You're on the losing team. And if all you're interested in is the stats on the back of your baseball card, stay on Team Adam. That is no place on Team Jesus. You can be the MVP of the losing team. It doesn't mean anything. Because your stats don't mean anything when you're in hell. And you don't go to hell because you've sinned. It's because you're on Team Adam. Everyone on Team Adam goes to hell by default. And that's what Team Adam, that's what it wants, to be separated from God, to be their own God. And your stats on your baseball card don't matter in hell. But Team Jesus might lose some of the battles. But Team Jesus already won the war. And same thing, if you're on Team Jesus, it doesn't matter if you're the MVP or you're riding the bench. You're on the winning team. Everyone on Jesus, on Team Jesus goes to heaven, even the bench warmer. As long as you're on the team, you're winning. You're going, going to heaven. And finally, I, I grew up in North Dakota in a very rural community and some guys who were really into their pickup trucks and all that, 
would do this pastime called mudding. Dustin knows what I'm talking about. They go mudding. This is where you just take your pickup out in some mud and like drive around in circles and stuff. And that's, that's mudding. I never did it. You know, I was never a car guy. I wasn't into camshafts and all that. Uh, but let's say you go out mudding, and then you're going to need to drive home, and you're going to need to clear your windshield because it's covered in mud. Hey, what's not going to work to clear the mud is a muddy cloth. Now, you can't clean mud with mud. You might smear it. You might be able to see a little more clearly, but you can't clean mud with mud. You can't get off of Team Adam by trying harder, by doing more of what you're already doing. You get off of Team Adam by Jesus, because mud just makes more mud. If you need to clean that windshield, you're going to need a clean cloth, not a muddy one. And although your robes are scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. If you're going to clean that windshield, you don't need mud, you need water. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. If you're on Team Jesus, let that guide everything you do. You don't have to play for Team Adam anymore. Hey, worship, it's about grace. Be transformed by that. Be encouraged and rejoice in the grace that Jesus has bestowed on us. And let's pray. Father, thank you for your amazing plan to make us right with you, to, to allow us to play for your team, to be on Team Jesus, even when we don't want to. And you just you led us on that team just by asking, just by saying, I want to play for that team. So Lord God, if there's anyone thinking that right now, I pray you would open up their hearts to receive the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would already be working in them. To have them think, you know, I want to play for Team Adam or Team Jesus. It's the winning team. I want to get off Team Adam. Thank you, Jesus, that you did all the work to save us from that. We just have to trust in you. And Jesus, I pray that as we go through our week and in our lives, we would remember that we're playing for your team, and we don't have to live in any of our old ways anymore. And we can live to serve you, Jesus. In your name, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a live teaching from the River Christian Fellowship, home of CSN. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you can catch the free podcast by searching the iTunes store for the River Christian Fellowship or give us a call at 800-357-4226. There's also a video of today's teaching available on our website, theriverchristianfellowship.com, and then click the media button. Don't forget to catch the evening service at 7 p.m. Mountain Time and tune in next week for more from the River Christian Fellowship live on CSN.